Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Mack Weldon, the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. Their design, Mack Weldon, is to be the most comfortable underwear or socks or shirts or hoodies or undershirts or sweatpants, you get the idea, and more that you'll ever wear. And our listeners this week, of course, can get 20% off their first order by visiting MacWeldon.com and entering the promo code GOODSEATS. Yes, 20% off your first order at MacWeldon.com. Enter that promo code GOODSEATS. Here's our show. Tonight, for television's biggest sports jackpot, $25,000. From the Hollywood Legion lanes, Ken Baylor meets Jim St. John. The winner to challenge, last week's $75,000 winner, the King of the Hill, Thurm Gibson. You'll also be seeing three of America's brightest young stars roll a ball for their favorite charity. It's Jackpot Bowling, starring Milton Berg. Brought to you by Miracle Mild of Philly, the best-selling cigars in the USA. Featuring Philly's Perfecto. Extra size, rich taste, Philly's Perfecto. And by Brunswick, the number one name in rolling. Now, here he is, your host, Milton Burrow. Thank you. Woo. Thank you. No, no, don't stop applauding. Come on, keep it up, keep it up. Keep it up. That's it. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. All that applause, ladies and gentlemen, will be donated to Henny Youngman who could use it. <laughs> well, how about what happened on this show last week? Thurm Gibson winning $75,000. How about that? Isn't that wonderful? I'm telling you. Believe me, you have no idea how thrilling it was. Right after he hit the jackpot, the sponsor ran over to Gibson, put out his hand, and hit him right in the mouth. <laughs> Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hey now there, everybody. How are you? It's Tim Hanlon and it's Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast, our little exploration each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. And uh, we, uh, we strive for the enigmatic on this little show, and uh, I think we have outdone ourselves this week. And uh, I, uh, I urge you to to listen carefully and uh, and learn uh, and enjoy uh, with me in our little uh, exploration this week into the world of bowling. Yes, I said the world of bowling, and our uh, our journey into the ill fated, very short lived but very fascinating and intriguing story of the National Bowling League. Yes, the National Bowling. League, there was such a thing in 1961 where, as you uh, heard in that little setup there, bowling on television was all the rage. It was uh, it was all over television. And and frankly, if you're a historian of, of television and media in this country, uh, back from the earliest days of when television was starting to truly get commercialized uh, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, bowling, along with professional wrestling, were probably the two biggest mainstays, I guess, of, of early television programming and on your black and white set as it got bigger and bigger uh, over the years. Uh, bowling was a uh, fascinatingly uh, easy sport to televise. It was uh, quite the sport of 
uh, of the everyman. And it was certainly something that everybody felt that they could do uh, and relate to. And uh, the uh, fledgling television networks, and there were only two or three of them at the time, uh, you young whippersnappers, again, you want to search up the Wikipedia and sort of learn what television was like before streaming and all that kind of stuff sort of came about. But uh, bowling uh, was very much uh, something very central in a lot of programming uh, on these TV networks and even local TV stations, too. That little clip that you heard at the beginning uh, was a nice piece of evidence circa 1961, January 9th, 1961, to be exact, on the NBC television network. Uh, at 1030 Eastern Time. Yeah, that was Chick Hearn, the uh, soon to be uh, Los Angeles Lakers and and, and other sports uh, legend uh, in Los Angeles with, of course, Milton Berle, whose career arguably was uh, beginning to wane. And, um, you know, this was actually uh, a, a show that NBC uh, shuttled Berle onto as they were trying to burn off, frankly, credits from their I think it was a 30-year-long, somewhat lifetime-type contract that they had with Burl. They wanted to kind of, you know, use him up. You know, uh, an interesting pairing there. Milton Burl doing some shtick. Uh, professional bowlers. These are real pros. Uh, the beginnings of, uh, of what we'll talk about in our conversation this week with our guest, our very special guest, Dr. Jake Schmidt. He's the sort of dean, I think, of bowling historians out there. He's, he's truly an historian. Uh, with a, uh, a PhD from the uh, uh, the fine institution known as the Univers- University of Chicago, where yours truly got his uh, MBA, but I digress. Milton Berle, uh, back to our little story here, um, did a little shtick there and and and, and basically hosted this uh, this weekly show where the top bowlers in uh, in and around this thing called the Pro Bowlers Association kind of battled it out on on live television. Uh, for some gigantic purses. And, and there were a number of these sort of shows, uh, primetime and on, on weekends as well. Uh, we'll get into sort of what transpired in 1961, because not only were shows like this on the air on national television in primetime, uh, but you also had the beginnings of what we now know today as the Pro Bowlers Tour and the Pro Bowlers Association and its uh, ultimate, I guess, decision by 1962 or so to kind of solidify that as the premier way uh, to have pro bowlers uh, featured and uh, and feted uh, and uh, and on television. Uh, but it is against this backdrop where our little story kind of begins in 1961. And it starts a little bit earlier than that. We we hint at that with Dr. Jake in a few minutes. When uh, the uh, Pro Bowlers Tour was not necessarily guaranteed to be the format. No, there were a bunch of people in the in pro bowling circles uh, that envisioned a a true team league, you know, with cities com- uh, competing with each other as as frankly, most bowling competitions at that time and even today are, are kind of constructed. There's teams, teams playing e- each other, uh, not individuals, which is what the tour sort of model is. Uh, but that's what we're going to get into today with this thing called the National Bowling League uh, with our guest, Dr. Jake Schmidt. And I think you're going to find it really intriguing. I, I This is a fascinating topic to me. I, you know, I, I bowl just about as much as any other average person out there in uh, out there in the world. But, uh, you know, to know that there was actually a league uh, that almost became, frankly, the manner by which pro bowling and uh, the television presentation of such 
uh, would have, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, come into modern day. But no, the tour is what what ultimately uh, uh, became sort of the format. But we uh, delve very deeply into this asterisk known as the National Bowling League. And, and you'll see the reasons why it, it was appealing to people, uh, why it uh, ultimately didn't work and the role of television and all that kind of stuff. And lots, lots more. If you're not even if bowling interests you at all, it doesn't matter. You're going to find this show to be fascinating. And again, uh, our conversation with Dr. Jake, uh, Dr. Jake Schmidt, coming up in just a couple of moments. I, I, I virtually guarantee that you will find this to be fascinating as I did. Before we get there, though, I want to say uh, hello and welcome to our friends at HelloFresh. Yes, HelloFresh, it's America's number one meal kit where you can get easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. And all you have to do, of course, is just cook and enjoy. And uh, we've tried the uh, HelloFresh service and the meals at uh, at the Hanlon household, and I will tell you, uh, they have uh, gone over tremendously well, and we cannot wait to get our next shipment uh, after the Thanksgiving holiday, of course. And uh, what is HelloFresh? Well, look, it's home-cooked meals made simple. Uh, they make cooking delicious uh, meals uh, at home a reality, regardless of the comfort level that you have in the kitchen. From step-by-step recipes to pre-measured ingredients, you'll have everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in just about mm, 30 minutes or so. So you can say goodbye to endless grocery store trips and takeout food. HelloFresh has you covered. It's delicious as well. Break out of the dinner rut with HelloFresh's 20-plus seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. There's something for everyone, from family recipes to calorie-smart and vegetarian and fun menu series like the Hall of Fame or their Craft Burger series. HelloFresh has more five-star recipes than any other meal kit, so you'll know you'll always get something delicious. And of course, HelloFresh is flexible to fit your lifestyle. You can add extra meals to your weekly order or even yummy add-ons like garlic bread or or cookie dough. So easily uh, it is for you to exchange uh, your delivery dates. You can uh, easily change uh, or update your food preferences. Hell, you can even skip a week or two as you might need based on your travel plan. So by all means, give it a try. It's HelloFresh. And of course, we've got got you covered on the uh, discount front. You're going to get nine free meals. Our listeners get nine free meals when you go to HelloFresh.com slash GoodSeats9 and use the promo code GoodSeats9. You got it. It's nine free meals. Hard to believe, but it's absolutely true, and it's absolutely delicious and well worth the try. Give it a try. Why don't you? HelloFresh.com slash GoodSeats9, the number nine, and use the uh, promo code GoodSeats9. Of of course, the the same number nine. And one more time, that's HelloFresh.com slash GoodSeats9, and enter the promo code GoodSeats9. It's an awesome offer. Give it a try. You will love it. Uh, and uh, we appreciate your doing so. And when you do so, yes, you give us a little love for the show, too, and that keeps our lights on, and we appreciate that tremendously. So why not eat your way to uh, supporting the show, why don't you? And uh, why don't you uh, grab one of your uh, your snacks there and uh, sit back and kick back and enjoy uh, our fascinating discussion uh, about the National Bowling League. Here it is. Here's our conversation with the great Dr. Jake coming up. Let's start from the start, right? So give our audience some background uh, uh, as to who you are and what your, uh, shall we say, day job is. And then how do we get into this, uh, 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 I think, frankly, world-class knowledge around the sport of bowling? 
Well, um, first of all, my name is John R. Schmidt, uh, but in bowling circles, they call me J.R. Schmidt or Jake Schmidt. Uh, I am a fifth-generation Chicagoan. I uh, went to graduate school. I went to uh, Loyola University here for my bachelor's and master's, Ph.D. from the University of Chicago in history. I taught at various places, everything from uh, kindergarten through college, mostly through the Chicago public school system. And I um, retired from that in uh, 1987. And along the way, I um, became a bowler as a kid. I was a good bowler, but not a great bowler. And I managed to make a decent amount of money bowling, but fortunately, I did not go up against too many people that were better than me. So that's how I worked my way through college. And I was able to pay for my college through bowling, and I continued bowling, uh, continue bowling in a league now for seniors, uh, go to the national tournament every year. I've done 52 of those. And uh, since 1990, I've been writing for Bowlers Journal International, and I do the historical uh, column for them. Besides that, I uh, right now I uh, write books on Chicago history. I uh, wrote for the Tribune for a while for WBEZ. My latest uh, project is I am uh, have a book out called... Uh, in Chicago landmarks, and I'm um, on WGN radio once a month uh, talking about some of the hidden landmarks in Chicago. But the bowling book I have, which is a collection of my bowling stories, is called The Bowling Chronicles, and there are 90 of my uh, stories from Bowlers Journal in there, including the story in the National Bowling League. So I'm always happy to talk about the National Bowling League because people uh, – People can't imagine why there would be a National Bowling League. I mean, the whole idea sounds outlandish today, because what the National Bowling League was, it was um, an inner-city league of five-man teams, and it was based on the uh, model of Major League Baseball, and they played in purpose-built stadiums, and they were on a six-month-long schedule. Well, it seems ludicrous today when you think of something like that. Bowling, uh, competitive bowling has not been doing well, but this is like... 1961, and in 1961, bowling was booming. Uh, for the past five years before that, the uh, number of bowling centers had grown 25%, and Brunswick and AMF were the uh, hot stocks in the New York Exchange, and every banquet, uh, athletic banquet, you always had a bowler there. And there were uh, two statistics that I like to s- cite to show how popular bowling was. In 1961, out of an adult population of 110 million Americans, 6.5 million bowled in sanctioned leagues. That's one out of every 17 men and women. And uh, also in 1961, a bowler named Thurm Gibson won $76,000 rolling six straight strikes on the Jackpot Bowling TV show. And he made more money in four minutes than Mickey Mantle earned playing an entire season in the Yankee outfield. So uh, in 1961, the idea of a National Bowling League uh, was not so uh, outlandish at all. So let's uh, back up for a second. So you're a, you're a historian by profession. So this this actually makes you doubly and triply qualified and interesting for for this conversation, right? And plus, I lived through it as a kid. There you go. But second, I think you're you bring up some important points here, right? Where you got to sort of put all of this in context because, and maybe you can go a little bit into some a little bit more detail here about say the 1950s or so. This is not just. A recreational sport, right? Obviously, set against the, you know, the booming time relative to the world, uh, the war years prior, right, in the 1950s. But also television, right? I mean, jackpot bowling was a, 
kind of a manufactured for television in its earliest days, really, uh, event, right? Bowling was perfect for TV, uh, just like wrestling was, because it, it had a small uh, arena that could focus on. You could do it with one camera, basically, and it was easy to understand. And these bowling shows, uh, every major bowling city had a local show, and then they had syndicated series like uh, championship bowling. Uh, later on, you had jackpot bowling, which was this, uh, which I mentioned, which was a network show. And actually, the idea for a national bowling league might have come from one of these uh, shows called uh, Bowling Time, which was in 1956. And their hook was they uh, got eight bowlers on, and they called themselves the National League of Bowling. And it was basically a TV show. And the eight bowlers represented eight different cities. They had a guy from New York, a guy from Chicago, Detroit, L.A., and so on. And they just bowled matches with each other, and one guy won. And then the next year, they had another TV show, and they called it the American League of Bowling. And they had, again, guys from different cities, and they bowled each other, and that was, that was the TV show. And um, along the way, this guy, Leonard Homo, who was a proprietor out in Los Angeles, got the idea, well, why don't we have a full-fledged, uh, five-man bowling league, five-man team uh, bowling league, just like just like the major leagues. There's, there's everybody loves bowling. Bowling's booming. So why don't we do this? And he was really the guy that was behind this. They really got it started. Leonard Homo. Well, uh, before before we get into Leonard's sort of story and sort of the origination of this, it's also you're mentioning television. You're mentioning it's certainly accessible, right, to the average American, right? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Because yeah, you watch you watch bowling on TV and. You know, you, you roll the ball down. I mean, there's a science behind it like anything else, but it's basically you roll the ball down, you knock the pins over, or you don't knock the pins over is basically what it is. Yeah, I can and, do that. Uh, right? Yeah, anybody can go out and bowl, and you can, you can get lucky. You can throw the ball, and, you, you know, you, and even, uh, even the arenas you can go to. Like Fates Neeson was a bowling alley in Chicago on the north side of Chicago, and they had eight lanes, and they had a famous TV show there. And people used to come in just to bowl open play there. I mean, you're a golfer, you're probably not going to shoot at Augusta. You're probably not, or you're not going to shoot hoops at Boston Garden. You're not going to play the outfield in, in uh, Yankee Stadium. But, hey, you can go up to Fates Neeson in Chicago, and you can bowl in the same alleys that Don Carter was bowling on or Joe Kristoff or, or Joe Wilman or any of these guys. So, so it, it appealed to people because it was an accessible sport. So given that then, and given it's, uh, you're, you're mentioning, you mentioned wrestling, right? Obviously, that's probably one of the first sports that sort of truly took to television in its even, even if it's in its infancy, even, or, you know, late 40s when it was just still somewhat experimental, right? Uh, bowling was probably almost on par, if you will, with uh, with the, with that in terms of the ease of, of, of televising as well as as well as maybe beyond say wrestling accessible in terms of its hey even I can do that and literally I can do it literally down the street or down the block. Oh sure sure and uh, again uh, the early days of television they would put the TV sub most of the early TV sets were in bars and it were mostly guys who were watching it in bars and the TV sets were very small and if they had a baseball game on it was kind of hard to follow the action particularly the TV sets up above the bar high up but you got a bowling match on you can see what's going on very easily so like in the early 50s and even getting in the late 50s uh bowling was very accessible to people particularly men yeah and, and that's and that's sort of the sort of the baseline i want to establish here because uh it's also uh, stands to reason right that as prize money starts to get sort of embedded into say some of these television showcases so to speak that the idea of 
professionalism, right, uh, for uh, bowlers who want to attempt a living at it for more, shall we say, bigger stakes and competitive prizes. Uh, the rumblings around how to do something around a professional version of bowling. Um, and I think that's maybe sort of an interesting sort of uh, uh, thing to sort of put out there uh, because this not not only was this National Bowling League sort of uh, gestating, but also this thing called the Pro Bowlers Association, which we know today. But I, I, it sounds to me like it was almost sort of a, a bit of a competition amongst the uh, bowling intelligentsia. Well, because beforehand, um, the people that earned uh, money as bowlers, like, for instance, a beer company would sponsor a bowling team in a city. And uh, like Budweiser sponsored a team in St. Louis and also Falstaff. And in Chicago, you had, you know, uh, Meister Brown, what, whatever, Strohs in Detroit. And the bowlers on the team would, would be paid a salary, and they'd go around, and they'd appear in exhibitions, and they'd promote the product. Okay, so those were the first people that were really kind of professional bowlers. But then in um, 1958, a guy by the name of Elias, who was a promoter in Akron, got an idea. Well, bowling is booming. Why don't we uh, start a professional bowler's turn, uh, tour based on individual play, just like the golfers have, Okay. And he was going to follow the model of the Professional Golfers Association. He managed to sign up some of these, uh, some of these bowlers. And they, in 1959, they started a tournament. And they had a few tournaments here and there. And when the National Bowling League comes along in 1961, there's competition between this. Which one of these uh, models is going to be the future of competitive bowling? Is it going to be team play the way it's always been? Or at the elite level, is it going to be individual play? And uh, the question was, who was going to get the TV contract? Because that's where the money was going to be coming from. So it, it, this almost seemed to be then sort of a, a battle for how to professionalize the sport, not if it was going to be have a, have a pro level to it. Oh, yeah, because, you see, the thing is, uh, when the National Bowling League already was starting, uh, they naturally wanted to get the best-named bowlers, like Don Carter and uh, the guys with the Budweiser's. Dick Weber, Billy Whaler, some of these other uh, people were the best bowlers of the day. But those guys had guaranteed contracts, like, for instance, Carter bowled with the Budweiser's team. And he had a guaranteed contract from them for going around the exhibitions, plus he represented Brunswick, the equipment manufacturer. He got money from them. So even though the National Bowling League was offering them money, uh, he was kind of wary about it. Uh, and so were a lot of the other elite bowlers. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the teams, they offered Carter something like uh, – I think they were going to offer him $40,000 and uh, a, a cut of the gate and, uh, and um, a gold farm. I think it was the Dallas team was going to offer him, but he decided to stay with the Budweiser's. Yeah, so so that's interesting. So it seems to me, and we'll get to that story in a second, because that, that's, 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 it's kind of, kind of wild and maybe almost emblematic of this uh, faded and short-lived NBL. But the it, it, I, my, my sense is that, in, I guess, circa, circa, I don't know, maybe it's 19... 58, 59 or so is when, I think it was 1959, when the first handful of pro tours kind of went out there. And it also seems to me like it was hand in hand with television, which arguably, and then in retrospect, seems like it, it was a leg up, I guess, before this idea of an actual league kind of came about a couple of years later and maybe almost kind of cemented it as doomed to failure, maybe, that... Uh, that maybe the tour was the way to go because TV and certainly sponsors were already, you know, kind of uh, circling around. Uh, this is the approach, the tour approach. Yeah, and the uh, the first uh, 
PBA tournament was in 59, and they did three that year, and the next year they did a few more. But actually the first tournaments, um, they would just have a bunch of guys would bowl, and they'd bowl 40 games or whatever it would be, and the guys that had the highest pin totals uh, at, the, at the end, well, it was points actually, but the guys who had the highest total at the end would win. Well, after a while when they got the TV contract, uh, they had some experience in bowling where you would get to the TV broadcast and one fellow might be way ahead and there'd be no drama in the match on TV and people would kind of tune out. There was, this happened in 1961, one of the 61 uh, All-Star tournaments, which uh, when they went on, went on TV, the guy, uh, the guy would, he could have practically died on the approach. He was still far, so far ahead he would have won the tournament. So when the Professional Bowlers Association comes along, they come up with a stepladder series on uh, TV to make it more interesting. The night before, on Friday night, the top five bowlers, as it turns out, um, are seated in the TV show. And then the fifth-place guy bowls the fourth-place guy, and the winner of that bowls the third-place guy, and then the winner of that bowls the second-place guy, and then the winner of that bowls the guy who's the leader. So that way, it's in doubt until you get to the last match. And that made it much better for TV, and that was the format that's uh, been used for uh, pro bowling with you know little tweaks for uh, over 50 years now, almost 60 years. From Northland Bowl in Jennings, Missouri, the PBA St. Louis Open. Hello again, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chris Shankle here at the Northland Bowl in Jennings, Missouri, a northern suburb of the great city of St. Louis. Now, this is our 14th stop on the Professional Bowlers Association's exciting national tour, which features the world's greatest bowlers competing for over half a million dollars in prize money. And every Saturday afternoon throughout the end of April, ABC, the number one network for sports, will bring you the climactic semifinal and final rounds of these great PBA tournaments. And friends, don't forget, if a perfect 300 game is bowled, the ABC television network will give an additional 10 $1,000. We'll be back with today's exciting tournament on Professional Bowlers Tour. Well, okay, so 1959 then, it sounds to me like is, is somewhat of a pivotal year because you've got sort of the early inklings of a, 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 a pro bowlers tour, whether it's, you know, maybe with television sort of on the sidelines or, or potentially in the mix relatively uh, quickly. But I, my understanding, and based on your writing, and, and by the way, all of the writings, and not only in, in, uh, in book form, but the various articles and stuff. I, I am talking to the dean of this stuff, so I, I don't think there's anybody on the planet who knows more about sort of the history of bowling uh, than Dr. Jake. So so let me ask this question then. It feels to me, based on what I've read from, from your stuff, that 59 was also kind of the time when the early seeds of perhaps this thing called the National Bowling League uh, kind of got started, even though the league itself really kind of didn't sort of launch until 1961. Is that right? Yeah, Hummel uh, put an ad in the um, in the Wall Street Journal, I believe it was, and he said he was uh, looking for investors in a new and exciting um, bowling promotion. And uh, he had a 54-page prospectus, and he called a meeting of people, and uh, they got together with the meeting. And after the meeting, after pre- presented this, there was you know people saying oh, it's great, but they were kind of a little wary about putting down the money. But then in January of 1960. Bowler's Journal ran a long article on this. And um, once uh, people in the bowling industry, uh, they started to take this seriously. And uh, that got the ball rolling. And after he would call another meeting in Chicago, and then he got a bunch of people together. And finally, um, 
initial roster of cities, I think it was uh, 14 investors put down, no, seven investors put down money, and they put down 5000 each uh, for National Bowling League franchises. And so they were going to start off, they were going to have the people that put down the money were Chicago and L.A., Dallas, and Fort Worth separately, San Antonio and Omaha, and uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And Ahamo was elected the league president, so now they had to go start organizing. Now, this was in January 196, uh, February 1960, and they wanted to start in uh, September of 61. So now they had to go out, convince more people to get in, sign bowlers, and so on. So I mean, this this speaks to just this the 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 craze around bowling at this time. I mean, this is this was it, it didn't seem outlandish. I guess maybe in retrospect, certainly it does, right? But the idea of this is just another form factor, I guess, of how to professionalize uh, or give another angle for for folks aspiring to be professionals on a fairly regular basis to kind of to kind of play and compete against each other. It, it doesn't seem so crazy at all, given the the television ratings and and the popularity of the sport writ large in the United States at this time. Oh, well, you talked to some. Of the, I talked to a guy named Tony Lindemann, who was one of the early bowl. He's uh, he's uh, passed away by now, but he was one of the bowlers in, in national bowling. He was actually the captain of one of the teams. And he said there was nothing like it. He loved the National Bowling League. So did another guy I interviewed, Ed Lebansky. He was with the Detroit team. Loved the National Bowling League. Wish it could have made a go, but it didn't. It didn't. He would treat it. He said even when the league at near the end of the season, when they were cutting back and they were scrimping and saving, just trying to get through the end of the season, um, they were still treated royally, they thought. And they just wished they could have uh, continued this, but they couldn't do it. They did not get the TV contract is what it turned out to be. Okay, well, so let's talk about Leonard Hommel then and, and also this guy Dick Charles, right, who who became the commissioner. Maybe the, the two stories of these guys maybe will help our audience better understand sort of maybe the formative months around uh, getting some kind of structure around now that, uh, you know, a number of, of folks are willing to pony up five grand for, for a franchise and, and kind of at least put some seed money into this. Well, yeah, and the, the thing is, there was a lot of uh, interest in this, a lot of enthusiasm that got the ball rolling. Uh, as I said, Dick Charles, uh, we, he was an Omaha sportcaster, and they hired him as a league commissioner, so he was going to be going out and schmoozing with people, talking with people, trying to get them uh, to sign up for this. And with the, all this publicity going on, it thing kind of snowballed. By uh, July of 1960, uh, like three or four months after they had this, uh, what was it, February? I guess that'd be five months, whatever it is, after the first organizational meeting. Now the price of a franchise was up to fifty thousand dollars. You know, people wanted to sign up. You know, put up put up fifty thousand dollars, and now there were twelve franchises that had signed up, and uh, they decided. Well, now they're kind of uh, getting publicity. They would decide to have a draft. Okay, this would be the great thing. They're going to show the public that they can attract bowlers. Okay, so the teams get together and they have a draft. Before we get to the draft, though, I just got to ask you this quick question. I haven't even interrupt, but it's because I want to get to yeah. the – who's putting the money up for these franchises? What, what is the source? Like, is there a prototypical owner type uh, or any of these uh, beer companies who seem to be very big part of the, the, the some of these tournaments and these uh, and the pro association and that kind of stuff? Uh, where is the money coming from? Who's, who's, who's ponying up the dough to, to own a franchise? Well, one of the, uh, one of the hunt, uh, hunts uh, was down in uh, – I believe it's Dallas, one of the Dallas Fort Worth. I can't remember, but one of the Hunt brothers uh, put up the money to uh, for the t- for the local team over there. 
the uh yeah, well, Lamar Hunt, yeah, we, yeah, was, Lamar was, Hunt, yeah. You know, huge, you know, figure in in challenger leagues and stuff. And then we'll oh, talk yeah, about Ameri- American Football League. He was the money behind the American Football League at the time. But he's he was probably more of an outlier, right? I mean, I you know, he had bigger fish to fry than than a National Bowling League, no? Well, his fifty thousand dollars and nothing to his pocket change. So right. might as well. but, but I'm just curious, just like where where are these other sort of uh, aspirants coming from? Like it, it was a. Were there any kind of was they prototypical or was it just like huge bowling fans or were they, you know yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it was bowling fans and people had some disposable income that wanted to to uh, invest in something like in San Antonio they had a retired I think it was a retired Air Force general was going to come up with the money for the franchise in San Antonio and that you know like they later had trouble because he, he um, didn't have the money but uh, a lot again it was a lot of people that are involved in the bowling industry the uh, locally the proprietors. Or people were just bowling fans that figured, hey, we'll take a gamble on this, and we'll put the money into this. So it was like in the different city was a lot of local proprietors. In Chicago, they had a man named Weber who was going to back the Chicago team, but he dropped out. He was the Chicago proprietor, so we wound up we wound up not having a team in Chicago. But again, a lot of cases it was local proprietors or local people who were businessmen who liked bowling or maybe even um, didn't like bowling but thought there was a uh, way to make money. Interesting. Okay, so so some the, uh, seed money was there, right? And so this draft, right? So you're you're I didn't mean to interrupt, but this draft is kind of almost seems like it's not only a way to stock this league with quality players, but also as a as a PR kind of event to kind of get people interested and the fact that they can hopefully attract some of the major bowlers of the time. Oh yeah, actually actually there's a there's a picture on this of uh in one of the bowling magazines uh of Lyndon Johnson who was, uh, this would be 1961, he was the, uh, no, this was still 1960, he was uh, still a U.S. Senator, and he was going to be running with uh, Kennedy for president. I guess he was, by this time, he was Kennedy, might have been Kennedy's uh, running mate. But anyway, he was there, at, and he was at uh, the NBL draft, and he, he drew one of the numbers out. And You're kidding. Was, no, really, really. Lyndon, B., Lyndon Johnson was at, uh, was at one of these meetings, and he drew one, one of the numbers out for something, I don't know, I can't remember the details. I wish I could, but I do remember the picture of him uh, after this meeting. Uh, what else he got to do when you're vice president, right? Or even a vice presidential candidate. But uh, you have to check me on that one. That might be a fuzzy memory. But what I do remember, though, is that they were trying to get publicity for this draft. So they had 12 teams signed up. So they started drafting and they took turns and they would pick different be- uh, people. And of course, um, you know, they, then they had assigned to people, and it got to the point where anybody that was any kind of a any kind of a bowler, any connected with bowler, local bowlers were being called. There. The 360th pick was Yogi Berra, because Yogi Berra, who was the catcher for the Yankees, then he was also a bowling proprietor. He owned a bowling alley in uh, New Jersey with Phil Rizzuto, so they got they got some uh, publicity for having Yogi Berra in the draft. Yogi, but not Phil. Uh, no. <laughs> no, Phil, Phil, Phil was Phil was uh, too little at that time, <laughs> but they uh, they picked these bowlers and then they had to sign them, and that was part of the problem because, uh, as I said, the elite bowlers like Don Carter and Waylon and Weber and Lillard and some of these guys, most of them had contracts with um, locally sponsored uh, teams and with equipment manufacturers, and so they were kind of wary to give up that uh, stability to sign up with this uh, National Bowling League, even though it looked good. They figured, well, we can wait it out. If it, if it succeeds and we've still got the name, we can uh, sign up with these guys. And then, of course, the National Bowling League 
basically said, well, we're going to make our own names. We're going to make our own heroes. So there was never, based on your research, there was never any discussion about allowing some of these major players the opportunity to play in, in both of these environments and help sort of rise the tide for, for all boats, so to speak? Well, well, it was a question of scheduling. It was basically a question of scheduling because uh, these guys had their contracts with, as I said, they were like the Budweiser's would, uh, were the most famous team then, sponsored out of St. Louis by Budweiser Beer. And they had a contract to go around and they go to different bowling, uh, bowling alleys in different cities where Budweiser was being sold, and they'd appear in these uh, in, in exhibitions. Maybe, uh, maybe the whole team would be there, maybe one or two guys, maybe just one guy. And that took up a lot of the time. And plus, they'd be back in St. Louis during the week, and they'd be bowling a regular league in St. Louis. So that took up a lot of the time, and that's why they were, what they were getting paid for. Like Carter was getting paid, I think it was about $25,000, which uh, in today's money, multiply that by eight. But um, the National Bowling League was saying they were going to have a minimum salary of $10,000. But, you know, these, these guys were so well, let's, you know, show me the money is the phrase, right? So um, there was really, logistically, not much way these guys could do it. But the National Bowling League did, though, sign up some named bowlers, though, as after a few months. Uh, Steve Nagy was the first uh, named bowler that they sold up. He was a two-time uh, bowler of the year, and he was the uh, guy that had shot the uh, – first um, 300 game in a film series and he is also the first bowler featured on the cover of sports illustrated and uh, to this day the only bowler featured on the cover of sports illustrated so when they signed steve Nagy to bowl well, that showed they were serious so that's interesting so so steve Nagy is sort of a, as a as a marquee signing yeah he was the first name bowler let me, let me ask you this then so uh, let's back up on the franchises for a second so you're mentioning sort of this uh, the the certainly the, the the strong tie between say beer companies and 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 the sport of bowling and and to the point of them sponsoring teams why in your estimation wouldn't say a Strohs or a Budweiser or whomever uh, think about uh, buying one of these franchises and and kind of you know naming it or or shoehorning it and their name into owning a franchise in a city in this fledgling league. The league wouldn't do it that way. Look at look at um, look at the St. Louis Cardinals, 1954. Gussie Bush of Budweiser bought the St. Louis Cardinals. He wanted to change the name of the stadium, which was Sportsman's Park. He wanted to call it Budweiser Stadium. National League would not let him do that. Okay, that was cheapening their product. Today, of course, we got people um, sports um, facilities sell naming rights all the time. But it wasn't done then. It was it was considered mixing things up. Of course, Bush uh, Gussie Bush got around that because he changed the name to Bush Stadium, and then he started putting out a beer called Bush Beer. So he kind of got around that one. But no, uh, Strolls and these these companies they were doing fine the way they were. Why should they risk the money to do this? Again, it was a speculative deal, and a lot of people were going to sit back and wait to see what happened because there was again it was also this competition with the professional bowling. Now, the thing with the Professional Bowling Bowlers Association, first of all, they were still on a limited schedule, and they were originally was only like um, you know a few weeks out of the year, and even by 1962, it was only 13 weeks out of the year that had the big tournaments, and most of those were like later in the week. So uh, bowlers who were signed up on one of the beer teams or somebody else, they'd still have time to bowl in their local league. They'd still have time to do their, their exhibitions, and they could uh, bowl in the Professional Bowlers tournaments. But if you were in with the National Bowling League, 
you were tied in originally three nights a week, you, and you were traveling around all the time. So there was no way you could uh, fulfill your contract with the, uh, with a uh, equipment manufacturer and bowl in the National Bowling League. Um, they probably have bitten off more they could chew. They were probably too ambitious. Maybe they should have started on a smaller scale. Okay, so now let so let me just bluntly ask this question then, and maybe this will be a theme as as we sort of go through the rest of the not so long history uh, of this. But explain to me, and 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 more importantly to our audience, the 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 relationship, if there was any, hands off, hands on, maybe underhanded uh, between the the Pro Bowlers Association in its infancy. And this National Bowling League, because it seems in retrospect that there was sort of a, I don't know, a bit of an antagonism or, or maybe the PBA having a bit of a, a head start, I guess, in terms of popularity of, of professionalism, uh, almost maybe not wanting this NBL to kind of happen. But from what I read from your from your writings, it almost seems like the PBA, at least publicly, kind of said, you know, we don't mind it. But, but I don't know if that, that feels true or not to me. It isn't true. That's what they said in public. I mean, they're not going to go bad-mouthing another uh, bowling promotion. But uh, behind the scenes, uh, Eddie Elias and the crew that ran the, the Professional Bowlers Association uh, was uh, uh, cautioning these uh, their bowlers, you know, you don't want to get started in this uh, venture over here. You're going to waste a lot of time. It's not going to make any money. The way to go is here with the Professional Bowlers Association. We have a model that we're using that's based on golf, and bowling was, in those days, was um, not as quite as popular as golf, but it, it, was, it was moving up, starting to rival it, whereas, let's face it, bowling was never going to rival the uh, Major League Baseball or the football teams or basketball or hockey, probably. They wouldn't rival them either. So a lot of bowlers uh, thought the way to go was the PBA model, the individual model, okay? Even though bowling had been traditionally a team sport, okay, five-man team usually, they've got the idea that if you were going to be a professional, if you're going to make money, the way to do it was the PBA model. And so when uh, the bowlers were kind of warned off with joining the National Bowling League, uh, they, uh, a lot of them did not take the plunge. You know that's very interesting, and and, and uh, look, we do a lot of uh, investigation of, of 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 things all the way back to the earliest days of baseball, even, and and certain themes evolve and and keep sort of repeating themselves, and and I, it almost reminds me now of what's going on with you know obviously in a, in a different realm lacrosse here in the United States, right? So there is uh-huh. there's an outdoor lacrosse league called Major League Lacrosse, and I, don't get me started on the indoor league, but it's a whole <laughs> different thing. But 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 uh, last year or this this last summer we we saw the introduction of a competitive league that's more uh, more of a tour kind of thing called Premier League Lacrosse. So it, it's very interesting, and and it, we get into things like you know central control versus franchises and and those economic models and stuff. But this is this feels to me like the very root of of the birth of professionalism uh, in bowling in this country, where it's almost sort of the battle of the models, right? Sort of the individual model and the tour kind of model, you know, going city to city with some of the, the, the game's best stars and, and, and having it being somewhat easily televisable uh, to versus a, you know, a, almost an emulation of say major league baseball, like you mentioned, or maybe even national football league where, where it's, it's civic, 
you know, uh, uh, teams battling it out uh, sort of in a prideful ma- kind of manner, you know, city versus city, kind of for the the pride, if you will, of, of each metropolitan area. And, you know, I, I guess at the time it seems like why not give both a shot? But it just seems that the NBL kind of had uh, so many strikes, no pun, I guess, it, against it in the beginning, given given the PBA's, I don't know, influence or uh, undue influence in the sport thus far? Well, one of the, one of the things you should uh, think about, and, and this is something that's, uh, in retrospect, you can see this, uh, with bowling. Bowling, is, as I said, it's always been a team sport, usually a five-man team, but basically you have five individuals shooting and adding their scores up, right? Okay? And that's, it's an individual game, which is, which in team play is uh, gathered five men together. The, the other major sports like football or baseball or hockey or basketball are really not individual sports. You don't have a, a baseball game where one guy gets up and hits and then another guy gets up and then another guy gets up separately or so on. They work together as a unit. Those major uh, team sports work together as a unit. Bowling was basically, when you look at it in its, uh, in its uh, details, is an individual sport where you just add the scores of five bowlers together or three or six or however many you'd have on a team. Five was the usual number they, they came up with. So in that sense, uh, the individual uh, model of the Professional Bowlers Association was bound to succeed because that's basically what bowling is, an individual sport which had been uh, grafted on, to, uh, which had been played as a team sport. Well, so, okay, so that's interesting. So, all right, so the draft is done. You've got players stocked. You've got some teams kind of announced. Um, maybe you could give our audience a sense of sort of how these franchises were going to, if you will, go to market in terms of the places that these matches would be held. It seems oh, like these cities yeah. all had sort of different approaches to that. Yeah, in Kansas City, they had an old theater downtown that they converted into bowling alley. And uh, in some of the other places, they had like an existing uh, bowling uh, bowling alley that they put, tacked an arena on for the matches where they had like four lanes there with, with seating. The uh, most ambitious idea was in New York City, where they took Grand, Grand Central Station, which is right in the heart of Manhattan, 42nd Street. Uh, there was a proposal that was actually given serious consideration of putting bowling lanes, dropping it down in the, the grand waiting room and uh, roofing that over and having bowling lanes and, in effect, not a mezzanine over there and putting the arena in there. And there was actually serious discussion about that, but then the preservationists said, this is ridiculous. So that never went very far, and they wound up shooting in New Jersey instead. But in all these cities, they did have purpose-built arenas. Either there was an arena by itself, or, as I said, it was something that was converted, like a movie theater, or it was tacked on to... Uh, to uh, an existing bowling center. As a matter of fact, that's how, how they wound up with eight uh, teams instead of 12 because they had signed up 12 teams and four of them could not meet their deadlines for uh, providing an arena, so they were just axed. And when the league finally got ready to get going, they only had eight teams. Yeah, that that's interesting because um, uh, you look at some of these uh, photos, and there are not a whole lot of them out there, at least the ones I could tell. Maybe you've got another source that we could talk about uh, after the – after our conversation, but uh, there were, um, you know, some, you mentioned like uh, Kansas City and Omaha, they were actually in theaters, you know, actually performing theaters where they literally just built the lanes on the stages of those and sort of created a, you know, an, an environment almost like a, a stage show, if you will, and versus say, 
you know, Dallas, like the Bronco Bowl, which we'll get into in a second, which is the Lamar Hunt involvement, which is really sort of a larger sort of commercial bowling centers with multiple lanes and and part of sort of the, you know, come on down and family play games and your local leagues and that kind of stuff where they would just maybe, I guess, you know, uh, curtain off uh, the other lanes and sort of just uh, focus on four lanes or so to make it, you know, that that sort of be the uh, the stage for, for the games. But it also seems like, too, that there were just others, like you mentioned, the New York situation, but others who... And maybe I think it seems like Leonard Hommel wanted to kind of uh, be part of this sort of group of folks that just want to create or build their own sort of purposeful or purpose-built uh, little mini arenas uh, specifically for this league. Yeah, that's what they did. Every place had its own little arena that was just used for the for the National Bowling League only. Even the even these uh, large uh, uh, large scale bowling centers had these little. Annexes. As a matter of fact, uh, the one relic that's still standing is uh, Thunderbird, uh, Thunderbolt in Allen Park, the Detroit suburb. They have uh, 78 or 80 lanes wherever, you, uh, wherever they got there, and they still have the little National Bowling League arena next to it, like four or six lanes, whatever it is. So that was the type of model that most of them were going to go with, okay? A regular existing bowling center, and you would have uh, this uh, purpose-built arena next to it, and uh, the Bowling from the, the open play and the leagues from the regular bowling center were going to help finance the construction cost. Very interesting. And for you, uh, New York, New Jersey, metropolitan area folks like myself, having grown up there, there's the trivia question is where in the, the fact that uh, the Grand Central bowling uh, idea fell through, do we know where in New Jersey uh, the, uh, the New York franchise was actually located? Uh, do you know that off the top of your head, Doc? Uh, Matawan, New Jersey. There is a picture in the book, uh, in my book, The Bowling Chronicles, of a match at the, um, I think they call it Gladiator Arena, which was the name of the team, New York Gladiators. It was in Matawan, uh, New Jersey. And you can see it's a late in the season, and you look in the stands, and there's, what, 10 people sitting around watching the match. I mean, there's still probably more guys down on the lanes bowling. All right, what's this? Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon, of course. Mack Weldon is the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. And, uh, you know, they, they go out on a limb, Mack Weldon does. They claim that their stuff is better than whatever you're wearing right now. That's uh, that's pretty bold. Uh, and them, Them's fighting words for sure. But you know what? In the case of Mack Weldon, it's absolutely true. I Trust me, because I've been wearing a whole bunch of Mack Weldon stuff over the last number of months. And I can I can vouch for, for just about all of it, frankly. Uh, and they're designed, frankly, the uh, Mack Weldon uh, offerings to be the most comfortable underwear, uh, undershirts, socks, shirts, hoodies, sweatpants, you name it. Anything in the in the realm of basics, Mack Weldon has got you covered. And uh, not only does Mack Weldon's underwear and socks and shirts look good, they perform well, too. They're great for working out or, or going to work or going out on dates, you know, just everyday life. I, uh, I highly recommend them, and they're easy to purchase, and uh, it's uh, it's it's a great way to sort of get all your basics covered uh, with one in one fell swoop uh, with our friends at Mac Weldon. Of course, we got you covered with a uh, a discount for you. Make sure you use the uh, promo code Good Seats when you go to macweldon.com, and you're going to get twenty percent off your first order. You bet, twenty percent off your first order just visiting macweldon.com and entering the promo code good seats. Now I've, you know, beyond a, a couple of the shirts and they've got a, a couple of great, uh, 
uh, thermal uh, long sleeve shirts. I love those, especially as the uh, the uh, months are getting colder now. Uh, but I will tell you the uh, probably the most uh, uh, underrated offerings in their collection of fine garb uh, are socks. They've got a tremendous selection and array of different forms of socks. There are uh, some really great uh, dress and, and casual looking socks. Uh, they're, and they're high quality too. I've been wearing them, like I said, for a couple of months now. They stay they stay high in your calf. They uh, they don't lose their shape. Uh, and of course, they're made with, uh, along with a lot of the other clothing that they've got at Mac Weldon uh, from their uh, proprietary antimicrobial technology, which basically means they help eliminate odor. Doesn't mean you can't wash them. You got to wash them, of course, guys. But uh, in terms of uh, uh, their uh, staying power, shall we say, uh, it's uh, it's uh, amazing technology that keeps your clothes as fresh and clean as they can be uh, as they go on in their lifetimes. And again, we've got 20% off all of your purchases from your first order at MacWeldon.com when you enter the promo code GOODSEATS. So check it out. Again, MacWeldon.com, promo code GOODSEATS. And now, back to our conversation. It's interesting in these theaters, right? So I, I know I think um, uh, the New York team also played in a, a theater in Totowa, New Jersey. I think Kansas City played in this, the, the, these, uh, I guess they were famous theaters at the time. The Midland Theater in Omaha's was called the Paramount. Yeah, the Kansas City thing. that they did. A, there was a kinescope out of uh, that the league had filmed to uh, promote it and uh, where they're bowling in this, uh, in this theater in Kansas City. And it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a palace. It's a palace from the 1920s. And when they bowled there, they even had the, the mayor came out and he threw out the first ball and everything. So they were very excited. So I got to think that 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 these plans would have at least been an enticing component to the pitch to television networks, right? Because it's clear that there was a lot of thought being given to how to present uh, both live as well as on television. Can you talk about this kinescope? Because I I wonder where this is. I, I read about it in your, in your in your writings. I guess there was a promo uh, reel or, or or film that was kind of created to maybe. I guess show shop around uh, to the networks as this being television worthy. No. Oh, they they have it down at the National uh, uh, Bowling Museum in Texas. They have a copy of. It. I've seen it. It maybe it's up on YouTube. Who knows? <laughs> but I've seen this kinescope. It's a, it's an exhibition match. They have the Kansas City team, which I think was called the Stars. I can't remember. And they were bowling against a makeup team of uh, bowlers from the other from the other teams, and they bowl a. I, um, well, I think they were both a two-game match because originally they were going to both three-game matches, but kind of dragging, so they went into two-game matches. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. So, okay, so, uh, but the television thing never sort of happened, and it, it they didn't let that sort of get in the way of getting the league actually started in 1961. Uh, do you have any insight into how well or how close the, the, the idea of getting televised games for the beginning of the season in 61 was, or were they just resigned to the fact that they were just sort of more focused on just operationally getting the, the games and the matches up and running? Well, I get, I get the feeling that they were never even close to TV contract because uh, they, they talked very bravely, but I, I think they figured, well, since we couldn't get the TV contract, uh, there was, uh, we're willing to pay them enough for, for what they wanted. Um, they would just uh, figure, well, we're going to get a big gate and it look impressive, and then the TV companies will come to us. But it didn't work out that way. The attendance was the attendance was very poor. I mean, uh, in uh, I think Detroit they had the best attendance, and they they maybe made average around fifteen hundred people for a while, 
uh, and then uh, one of the cities, uh, Fresno wound up as one of the cities. They were, they were averaging like 400 people. And this was, you know, at the beginning of the season when there was a lot of uh, interest in it. And of course, as I said, by, by the end of the season, everything kind of slacking off. And as I said, you got these situations like where, where that bowling alley looks deserted. The arena is hardly anybody over there. So let's talk about the teams then. So you mentioned some of the cities, but uh, give me a, I mean, it doesn't seem like, again, in retrospect, and I don't know, and I haven't, you know, dug through all the the newspapers at the time and stuff. But, you know, I, it's my understanding that, you know, bowling was a fairly well-covered sport in, in sports uh, sections of newspapers. I got to think that there would have been some promotion there. And, and uh, what about marketing and advertising of these teams, right? Was there any money kind of out there to kind of promote the fact that, frankly, you got to come see this because it's not going to be on television or or, or you know, I, I find it hard to believe that there wasn't any sort of marketing uh, kind of stuff aside from the occasional Sports Illustrated article or, or, or column in, in a newspaper, right, that, you know, to attract or to entice people to come. Well, I don't know if it was a question of they hired the wrong people to promote it or what, but uh, they didn't get the word out. I mean, okay, you had eight teams. <laughs> uh, they finally started Dallas and Detroit and Fort Worth and Fresno, Kansas City and L.A. and New York. Uh, Omaha and San Antonio and the Twin City Skippers. That's not eight, it's ten rather. They have ten teams they start with. But uh, they they tried to promote it, uh, but it didn't pick up. They didn't pick up. The newspapers would send somebody to it, and the news reporters would go there, and they get bored most of the time. Um, to give you an example of this. Uh, Dick Charles, the commissioner, when he'd go into the city, okay, he'd uh, land at the airport, he'd get in the cab, and right away, he'd ask the cab driver, hey, uh, how's the um, you know, San Antonio uh, Cavaliers doing, the local bowling team? Or how are the uh, uh, Los Angeles Toros doing? And he'd get in the cab, and the cabbie wouldn't know what he was talking about. And this was like the local bowling team. I think, he's, I, think I read someplace, like he, he, it took him like months before somebody uh, realized there was a bowling team in town. So uh, the local newspapers uh, you know, did, not, uh, did not promote it as well, too, because after a while... You know, you you go to a uh, match and you see there there are only a you know handful of people over there, and you think, well, you know, why should why should we promote this? You know, there's not public interest in it. Well, we got other sports we can write about, or maybe we can write about the Professional Bowlers Association, which is drawing people as well. Well, I got I, it. Seems to me that the 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 Pro Bowlers Association, though, kind of also maybe kind of crossed them off at the pass, right, in terms of getting. Uh, television contract, right? I know the Pro Bowlers Tour and ABC, that was sort of, I, I don't know if it was around at that time. I don't know when it actually got launched, but it almost feels to me like uh, whether through luck or by cunning, uh, the PBA kind of got the TV sort of situation before or instead of the NBL. Well, look at it this way. Um, the PBA, you just have an hour and a half broadcast and you have it in a, in a uh, one location, you go from city to city to city, and that's it. The National Bowling League, you're jumping all over the country. You're going from L.A., you're going to New York and places like that. And these matches, um, you know, who knows how long the match is going to be, uh, even when they cut it to two games. You might be there for an hour and a half. You might be there for two hours. The, the uh, Professional Bowling Association, quick, individual matches, easy to follow, and so on. So the um, the model of uh, – Team bowling was uh, was not um, 
agreeable was not uh, to the uh, to the networks. It was uh, much easier to sign something, much simpler to sign something, a package like the PBA, than it was to uh, um, deal with this whole league uh, concept. All right, so we're talking October-ish of uh, 1961 um, when they sort of things got going, uh, actual matches and competitive play. What were the organizers, uh, what did they have in mind uh, in terms of, of how the format for this would work? Because I do understand that there were some uh, some points, uh, unique uh, uniqueness to it, as well as even this um, a couple of extra wrinkles in terms of how to sort of add some drama uh, to these to these competitive uh, matches. Yeah, well, as I said, originally they started with they're going to have uh, five man uh, teams and three game matches, which has been the tradition. Well, that dragged, so they cut it to two men. And one of the things they had was they had a point system, where besides. Um, Adding up the bowler scores at the end of the at the end of the night, you'd have the first bowler at this while he was bowling in the team play would be matched against the first bowler and the other team, and the second bowler against the second team. And if the guy like on um, Detroit shoots uh, 210, and the guy in his appoint, opponent San Diego shoots two, uh, San Antonio shoots 205, then the Detroit guy gets one point, right? Besides his uh, his uh, 200 and uh, 210, and um, those extra points would go into a total, and you get points for if the whole team won the game, they get so many points. And plus you get so many points for these individual matches, and you get so many points for the individual series, and plus the guy who shot the high game of the night, he get points. And uh, it, w- it would be kind of confusing, but at the end of the night, whichever team had more points, they would get a W, okay, in the uh, league standings. They would get a one. One loss, so it was basically like Major League Baseball was one loss. So they were getting rewarded for individual uh, achievements during these matches, as well as sort of team competition. Well, team competition, okay. and um, the uh, as I said, uh, it was kind of difficult for uh, a lot of people to to follow this. The funny thing is now a lot of leagues have this system. The league I bowl in has this system till we get extra points, and they I'm bowling like uh, fifth. The guy that's bowling fifth opposite me, I beat him, I get an extra point. You know, they've, we've adopted kind of that system. The one thing they did not adopt that the uh, league uh, was actually kind of popular with the spectators was what they call the wild card. In other words, um, the teams always carried more than five bowlers. They carried like seven, eight bowlers, maybe nine or ten at the beginning of the season when they had money. And uh, say a bowler would go out and he'd leave a, uh, a split, okay, like something like the um, – Oh, let's say the uh, four, seven, ten. Well, a bowler would uh, anybody who's a bowler would know that a left-hander has a little bit of an advantage on this compared to a right-hander, depending on the way the ball curves. So what you might do is you call in a wild card. You have a lefty sitting on the bench, and you call this guy in, and he gets a, he get, he would actually try to take a shot at the spare, and he might have a marginally uh, better chance of picking up the spare. Than uh, the, the regular right-handed bowler, and when he, when this guy came off the bench cold and he threw his one ball and he picked up the split, I said, "My God, it, you know, house would go wild," because it was a very dramatic way of doing things. So that was the one thing that was very popular with the uh, with the with the fans, uh, even though you know it didn't always turn out that way. You didn't always have the guy uh, convert the split or whatever he needed to do, but when he did, wow, that was something. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So it's almost like having a ringer, if you will. Uh, yeah, basically, have a, a handful of opportunities to use sort of a, a player like that. So I mean, that that feels to me like kind of maybe where the league could have had a, a bit of a uh, 
an advantage and and some uh, I wouldn't call it gimmickry, but uh, but the idea is that you know it at least adds a little bit of sort of um, uh, you know competitive spice to things that uh, might ordinarily just seem like uh, pretty rote when it's five versus five. Well, one of the other things they tried to do is they try to encourage the fans to get involved in this because like normally when people go and watch a bowling match, they'd be quiet. And if somebody threw a strike or did it, picked up a rail or something, they clap and then they'd be quiet again. Well, what the league tried to do is encourage the fans to try to make some noise and carry on like you're at a baseball game or something like that. Well, you're in a little arena over here and that, you know, you can hear what everybody's saying. And a lot of the bowlers didn't like that. I mean, you got um, Ed Lebansky was working on a bunch of strikes going for a 300 game, and there was, it was getting noise in the back, and he refused to stop until, then, until they, and the guys were quieted down. And there was another case, um, Carmen Salvino, who's still alive now. He's still around. He's in about 85 years old. He's very, very exuberant bowler, very, uh, very demonstrative bowler. Uh, guy in the stand started getting on him, and Mrs. Salvino was over there, and he was calling Salvino nasty names and uh, who happened to be sitting next to Mrs. Albino. So, so Carmen finally had enough, and Carmen climbed into the stands to confront this guy, okay? And uh, they, they kind of had to pull him away and so on. So that was, that was in, in some sense, that would backfire, <laughs> this idea of trying to get people involved in things. But that was, they, they had to do something because they were losing fans, so they, they tried that. Then they try other things like that. They, they had, like, halftime shows. I think in Dallas they had a, they had a bowling chimp. <laughs> they came on, but they were they would try anything to try and get fans. They cut ticket prices. Nothing seemed to work after a while. Yeah, you know, all these things sound like they'd be perfect for television. Ironically, yeah. yeah but again, again, they TV was kind of wary about this model uh, because when the league started, they were going to bowl five nights a week. Okay, because they're going to be moving all over the place to do this. Well, after a while, they saw this wasn't working. So the half season. Teams were dropping out. They got to, they got down to, the, to only six teams. Even Leonard Hamill's team had a fold. So they were by mid-season, by January, they're down to six teams. And they had to cut back. They finally cut back to two days they were going to bowl. They were going to bowl like a doubleheader, I think it was, on Sunday, and then they were going to bowl Monday just to save money. So things weren't working out. Things weren't working out. All right, so of all those 10 or 8 or whatever the number of teams were, because this clearly was a moving target as the season kind of sort of rolled on again, so to speak, understand where this question is coming from. Were, were there any, t- any teams that were, shall we say, more successful than others, uh, d- despite the uh, the truncated nature of this league and, and this season? Uh, did, did some kind of do it right or were on to something? And, and, you know, if things had gone on, maybe could have like made a go out of it versus others, which were maybe just complete farces from the beginning? Yeah, probably Detroit. Um, I don't know if they made money, but they probably lo- uh, lost less money than the than the rest of the league because Detroit again was a bowling hotbed. As a matter of fact, it was probably the with, with Chicago and St. Louis not bowling being in the league. It was probably the uh, bowling a city that uh, was in the National Bowling League. And um, as a matter of fact, they wound up winning the championship um, when they got halfway through the season, and teams were dropping out. The league had a meeting and they decided, okay, Detroit's got the best record. They won the first half. And now we'll have a second half, and whoever wins the second half, then they'll bowl Detroit for the for the World Series title. So, yeah, Detroit probably had the best shot, uh, the best uh, either made the most money or lost the least. So <laughs> this is the the, uh, the, the Detroit Thunderbirds, named after I guess right. this uh, this complex that they were part of that you say is still standing. And is is there any reference to it? Uh, is there a you know a plaque or anything that you know 
NBL bowling was played here, or, or is it completely forgotten? Well, I don't think it's forgotten. I don't think it's totally forgotten. I've been in the place. I've bowled in the place. Uh, they, every once in a while, they they hold something in the arena, which is like this little little annex next to it. They should have it really on a plaque there, <laughs> but uh, I really don't know if they do. Uh, I have to look next time I get to Detroit. All right, so you uh, you are Detroit listeners. If you're not already shouting at your devices, uh, correcting me on uh, this uh, this piece of ignorance that I've uh, thrown out there, uh, it'd be very interesting to know. But so okay, so let's talk through sort of the season now. So you 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 hinted at it, but just to clarify for the audience, right? So there were four of these original ten, the ten teams that that folded kind of in the mid season, right? So so the Packers of Omaha, the Los Angeles Toros, which you uh, alluded to was uh, actually owned by, but right the guy behind the whole the, this whole league in the first place, uh, which is sad and 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 you know sadly ironic, right? The stars of Kansas City and the San Antonio Cavaliers, who I think never even had a home match, right? Because they couldn't find the right they couldn't find a, an arena to play. No, they had they had the they had this uh, retired Air Force general, uh, Tony Lindemann, who I mentioned before was the captain of the team. He told me about this. This guy was supposed to build the arena, and he didn't have the money for it. And uh, by this time, they were getting close to the start of the season, so they couldn't kick this team out. So they made him a road team, and they would travel around to different other cities. Lindemann himself, he moved to Dallas, and he lived in Dallas. And they would they would go and they'd uh, be like a swing team. They would they would bowl in all these other cities, and that didn't last very long. And they they eventually had to drop out of the league too. So so that second half though then uh, was uh, of the remaining teams, and then that the winner of that second half, which was Twin Cities. Right, the Twin Cities Skippers. Who uh, the Clippers would then play? Skippers, uh, Skippers. I'm sorry, the Skippers. I yeah. apologize. Hey, look, it was only on, it was only out there for a couple of months. You got to give me a break here. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So, so what was the method or the mechanism that uh, the uh, the champion uh, was uh, to be determined uh, as they stumbled through the rest of this league? So, Twin Cities versus Detroit in what was it a one game thing or was it a series or what? No, it's just it was just like a, it was just like a, a original. It was just going to be a match uh, against the teams over here and. Uh, First of all, they weren't even going to make it home and home because of the belt tightening had gone down. By this time, uh, Dick Charles, the commissioner, he'd been fired because they couldn't afford to pay his salary. And uh, they did have a lawyer, uh, the, the league's lawyer. They, uh, he had to double up on the job to save money. And uh, they finally were uh, faced off against the Twin City Skippers and the, the Thunderbirds uh, May 5th and 6th. And they were going to bowl the best of, uh, it was going to be a best of five game series. But uh, Detroit swept it, you know, in three games. They won the first uh, three two-game matches, and that was it. They became the 61-62 NBL champions. And the uh, local TV station uh, filmed it, uh, the, the championship match. And uh, nothing seemed to go right because uh, they didn't even get much newspaper publicity because the Detroit newspapers were on strike that week. But the bowlers split their purse. Uh, I think they, the winners got $2,500 to split. The losers got 1500 and then the league said, well, we're going to be back for a second season. Don't worry about it. Uh, but by July, they, they just announced that it was over. All right. A couple of things to unpack there. So it speaks to some of the bad luck, I guess, in terms of promotion and stuff. So you're hinting that in Detroit, but I guess in a couple of other cities too, right? There was a newspaper writer's strike. Yeah, in Detroit there was. And uh, and as I said, um, normally even when there wasn't a strike, the local papers after a while weren't even that interested in it. Yeah, but that's interesting because they, arguably the only real sort of media source of uh, of interest, right, was going to be in this sort of newspaper kind of uh, format. And 
And even that was was lacking in Detroit, which is, you know, ready to win the title, perhaps. So how much so that 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 series, the NBL World Series, right, which is in, in May in Michigan, it wasn't too long between that and I guess it was July 9th, 1962, where the uh, acting commissioner at the time uh, basically said, we're done. The, the league is is over. And I guess a lot of people in the bowling community kind of already sort of surmised that that was going to be the case. But was there any other was there any particular event or any any other sort of uh, issue that sort of popped up? I mean, I you think that that it would have at least given them some time to recalibrate, rethink perhaps push one more time on the television front. What other things were happening? Was the PBA just really sort yeah, of... They, they, they yeah. tried to get the TV contract. They made one final pitch for the TV contract. TV wasn't interested, so that was that the guys weren't going to continue. They were, they were bleeding money all over the place. They weren't going to stay and continue to lose more money, so they just, they just quit. They just gave up the ghost. Most of them lost... Well, everybody lost money. <laughs> As I said, Detroit probably lost the least. But uh, maybe they could have amortized that with the open play from the regular 84 lanes or whatever they got over there in the, in the regular bowling alley. So, but but it, to take any sort of lessons from this, right? It wasn't sort of an indictment of the sport of bowling, right? It was just that this was a format and, frankly, situational issues that kind of, you know, was not sort of the, the best environment for presentation because the PBA seemed to be chugging along quite nicely and, and, and moving to the next level. Oh yeah, the PBA did very well. PBA uh, wound up the PBA tour wound up uh, being on the network for uh, thirty something years on uh, on ABC on Saturday afternoon and without try the golf tournaments and a lot of the other sports at the time. So bowling was uh, was still very popular uh, into the nineteen sixties and for many years after competitive bowling was very popular. It was just seemed like it was a bad model and a bunch of bad luck. And uh, probably uh, bad execution by uh, by some of the people who were in charge of this. Uh, didn't know what they were doing, made some mistakes, whatever. It's easy, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. But uh, you know, who knows at the time what the decisions they made probably seemed good to them. Any evidence that uh, players who uh, chose to play in the NBL uh, were given maybe a cold shoulder by the PBA once they decided they were going to, you know, end that uh, or it was ended for them and they went back and they wanted to be in the PBA or did the PBA no, start no. welcome with open arms? No, no, they were they were glad to be back. I had a friend of mine, uh, Maury Oppenheim, who's I, I believe he's still alive in Chicago. He um, was on one of these teams uh, in the National Bowling League and they I think he was on the L.A. team, I can't remember, but they, at the middle of the season when they were short money, they cut him loose, okay? And he, he comes back to Chicago. He's a young guy in his 20s, and uh, he, gets in, um, he goes over to Cleveland. He gets in a bowling tournament in Cleveland. He almost won the PBA tournament in Cleveland. He finished second. So it was like a Cinderella story in his part. So, uh, no, no, they were, they were welcome back in PBA because, after all, they, they were still bowlers. Uh, and Steve Nagy, who was one of the uh, giants of the – um, National Bowling League. Everybody loves Steve Nagy. So when Steve Nagy, when the league folded, Steve Nagy comes back to the PBA. You know, welcome back, Steve. Sorry it didn't work. As a matter of fact, the PBA now, uh, Nagy was so Nagy was so loved uh, after he died. The PBA has an award they give every year to the, um, the nicest guy in the tour, basically, and they call him the Steve Nagy Award. It's like a like a friend, like a DeRocher Rebuttal Award that a nice guy can finish first. You know. <laughs> So, you know, these guys were welcome back. Uh, the guys had gone to, you know, no hard feelings. You, you made a bad choice. <laughs> and we're sorry you guys lost money, but you had fun while you did it. Well, no, the bowlers didn't lose money, but, uh, you know, you had fun at least. So now go back to the PBA. 
Well, all right. So so let, let's let's round the corner on this. So given that the PBA and the Pro Bowlers Tour and ABC for many years, Chris Schenkel and, and uh, legendary sort of, uh, you know, Saturday and Sunday afternoon presentations uh, that, you know, that sort of went on through, I guess, sort of uninterrupted, I guess, through the 70s even. Oh, in the 90s, actually. Right. You know, and then obviously, you know, and a couple of different ownerships of the PBA and stuff. And, and it seems like Fox now uh, is even going to give it even another injection, I guess, of of promotional uh, uh, spin, if you will, uh, to kind of even, you know, gussy it up even further. But I'm wondering, given all the relative success of the PBA over the years, the Pro Bowlers Tour over the years and television, and maybe I'm just missing something, but why hasn't there been maybe another attempt at sort of a league-based kind of format or or something other than the way it's currently presented, which seems to be pretty straightforward and almost very similar, I guess, to the earliest days of the late 50s, early 60s, you know, in this sort of staggered, laddered format. Uh, uh, from a team perspective or, or some other way to present, I guess, a competitive, uh, maybe team-based, maybe city-based kind of a way to, to do competitive bowling or or were people just so burnt by this experience that nobody wants to even give it a try again, especially given, sorry, by the way, uh, a, a, a gigantic television environment with lots of niche channels and cable networks and, you know, that could probably support this on, on a pr- profitable basis. Well, the PBA has uh, has uh, experimented with uh, with uh, team play in uh, in a various small environments, but it's still individual bowling seems to be the way that it uh, with with uh, sports seems to be going the last several years, and that's what people are identifying with. And even uh, in um, recreational bowling, is now more overtaken uh, league bowling. League bowling has been dying out gradually over the years, so. You know, who knows what the future of the sport will be? I mean, if we had a crystal ball that worked, we could figure it out, I suppose. But I don't know. And, I, and the leaders of the bowling industry, they don't know uh, either. They're, they're operating blind as best they can. And uh, I guess we see what happens. Yeah, that's interesting because if you look for a sort of a, an analogy, I guess, or, or a, a, a similarity, I, I look at, say, World Team Tennis in 1974, 1975, right? There's, there's another sport that, uh, frankly, around the same time, and—, and Interestingly, a guy named Lamar Hunt uh, in the in this that story, because the World uh, Tennis Association, which he was behind, uh, was almost battling again, very similar, I guess, uh, sort of a, from an individual player perspective versus this sort of team concept where Billie Jean King and 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 uh, her husband at the time, Larry King, not the, that Larry King, uh, and some others were sort of trying to create a team concept right down to what you just described. Fans getting involved and in, 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 in hooting and hollering and, and, you know, making it fun versus sort of the quiet kind of thing. And obviously it exists today in a, in a much sort of di- more diluted form, W World Team Tennis does. But, you know, for a couple of years in the 70s, that was almost a, almost a carbon copy, albeit in a different sport, of this concept that the NBL was kind of trying to get off the ground. Well, you, you do have people uh, tell you, like, um, well, golf, for instance, you do have the pro golfers, which is basically an individual sport, but the golfers, when they're on the Ryder Cup team and they're representing uh, the United States or they're representing Europe, uh, they will tell you, most of the golfers, that it's a completely different game. The idea of you working as a team, okay? So team play, that, that camaraderie is, is uh, very powerful in uh in sports, if you can if you can get things together in a team, and the bowlers, 
that uh, bowled in uh, team events, uh, that bowled as a team, and also bowled in the National Bowling League, almost all of them will tell you that they preferred bowling in the team uh, format as opposed to the PBA singles format. Not everyone. Now, there are a few bowlers I can think of who I won't mention that I talked to, and they said, no, the PBA is much better. The, the, the National Bowling League was, you know, was a pipe dream. But um, most bowlers who participated in the team event and, and the National Bowling League as a team, uh, they liked that type of play better because, as I said, there was the camaraderie of it, the uh, social interaction with the other guys. Yeah, and I guess, and I alluded to it earlier, so I, I just, you know, I wonder, I, I, we'll see what what Fox has up its sleeve in terms of, of its uh, of its presentation. I mean, I know Rob Stone, for example, who who covered uh, a lot of the matches uh, during his ESPN days is sort of a, uh, he calls himself a ham bone purist, uh, but he's, you know, he's sort of a younger generation of folks trying to sort of inject more uh, excitement and energy, and, and certainly the personalities uh, are certainly part of it, right? Uh, you want to have it stop short, I guess, of pro wrestling, I guess, in terms of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the integrity, I guess, of the, of the play and the sport. But I do see, you know, there is sort of a, um, a renaissance, I guess, of some of these, uh, uh, pro sports, uh, that is sort of a, I guess you could call it a hybrid between, you know, that of the individual sort of approach uh, competition and that of teams, this sort of like touring teams thing, right? Like the big three in basketball or the premier league lacrosse, uh, experiment, which will be going into its second season next year, right? Where these teams are, they're kind of manufactured. They don't sort of, they're not domiciled around ge- geographies, but they are sort of teams that literally go city to city week after week and compete against each other in a more team-based competitive format versus straight individuals. I wonder if that might be a mechanism of interest for the PBA to I don't know, evolve from just the pure uh, head-to-head individuals, or or maybe maybe I'm just sort of, you know, pipe dreaming here. No, that's what they're, that's what they're thinking about doing. I don't know uh, what's going to be the final form about that. You'd be better off talking to somebody in the PBA about that. But uh, the idea of, as you said, of a hybrid of uh, taking individual sports, which is basically what team bowling is. It's a hybrid of an individual sport uh, putting on a, uh, putting on a, on a team uh on a team model, yeah, that's that would seem to be the way to go because it would the idea the idea would be it would appeal to promoting team bowling um, by the regular everyday bowlers like like you had like I cited the statistic uh, in 1960 uh, you had one out of every 17 adults in the country were in some kind of a league, okay, and of course we've lost that and if they could get back to that idea of the team bowling. That would be good. I mean, what was the basic uh, book that was written 20 years ago called Bowling Alone about how uh, America's uh, social capital is kind of dissipated through that. People don't uh, aren't uh, connecting in society the way they used to. But uh, I, I think that it's got a possibility to do that. I would I would hope it would be. But uh, I guess, again, we have to see what, how things uh, work out and how it's promoted. Very, very interesting. Um, all right, so let me ask you this this one last question because I think it's uh, it's it's been a theme in, in our chat, and that is that is bowling and television. Um, they seem to have gone hand in hand uh, since the uh, earliest days of, uh, of professionalism, and we've we've kind of walked through sort of how one sort of format uh, made sense and how one maybe was not attractive. So, what is your sense of that relationship uh, going forward? I mean, I, I know the PBA has gone through. 
uh, a couple of different where the Pro Bowlers Tour has gone through a couple of different owners over the last number of years, and it's gone through you know various uh, television contracts and stuff. But you know, there's, it's undeniable that that there is there's an attraction there, and there's an there's an a uh, an, aff- an affiliation right between the average Joe, if you will, and 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 playing the sport. I mean, you know, I grew up watching things like Bowling for Dollars, which is sort of a local franchise. Or I- I'm fascinated, for example, by uh, old episodes from the 1970s of Celebrity Bowling, uh, which is out there floating around in syndication with you know Don Adams versus Don Rickles, you know, in a in a in a, in a match, you know, uh, right next door to Don Amici and uh, you know and, and Barbara Feldon. I mean, it's just fascinating stuff. But bowling continues to endure. What is, what are your thoughts about the current state of bowling as 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 it is played professionally uh, and, and specifically television, given your your knowledge of the sport? Well, I think bowling will always endure, and unfortunately, I think they have to continue to come up with uh, more and better ideas of promoting it. Um, if uh, they they come in with, um, as you said, a um, a limited uh, team concept for bowling for uh, you know a few weeks of uh, that, or if they can come up with like a, a best, uh, well, the equivalent of a. Um, uh, golf uh, format where you have one guy throw the first ball and the other guy picks up the spare. I think you call it scotch doubles, I believe. So if they can come up with any kind of uh, 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 more interesting format to just get people watching it, I think that will that will help very much because uh, you're always going to have a core of dedicated bowlers who will watch it and will watch uh, how the bowlers are playing the lanes, what kind of ball they're using, and so on like that. But you have to uh, get the general public involved in this, and you have to get the kids involved in this. And they've been trying for years to get the kids involved in this, and uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But there's so much so much else competition for people's attention now, it is difficult. But there will always be a niche for it, and it's a question of maybe – you, you you need to do baby steps instead of shooting too big, shooting too uh, high instead of taking giant leaps. That was probably the uh, one of the reasons the National Bowling League failed because they tried to do it all at once. If bowling is going to succeed, they have to do it with baby steps. Uh, you're not going to get back to where you were in the 1960s and 1970s overnight. You're going to have to do it slowly and build on it and get that interest back in the sport. And I, I really hope it happens because... Uh, I've been bowling for 60-something years. I've been writing about it for 30-something years. I love the sport. I love the people in it because they're the most wonderful people in the world. And I, this sport will not die. We're not going to let it die. And it's going to triumph. Yeah, and I, and I guess it's personalities too, right? I, it seems to sort of wax and wane. And, and obviously, you know, there, there, there are certainly legendary names that I even remember from, you know, watching some of the old uh, pro bowlers tours and stuff. Uh, but, you know, I guess, uh, you know, the Don Carters of the world, right? I mean, uh, these are names that, you know, people people actually do remember because they were stars in their own right and making some big bucks. Yeah, when Light Beer uh, was being promoted, Light Beer used to have all these guys uh, on sports, uh, retired sports uh, stars doing commercials like uh, like uh, Mark Thronberry and other people like that, Bubba Smith. Um, who was the one bowler they had? They have Don Carter. He would do the commercials. Okay, the Bud Light commercial, and they had Rodney Dangerfield out there throwing a ball, you know, for this thing. So people knew bowlers. People knew, you say, Don Carter. Oh, everybody knew who Don Carter was in the 1960s, even in the 1980s, when he hadn't bowled professionally in 10, 20, 30 years. He'd been past his peak. You knew who Don Carter was because they'd gotten their publicity back in his heydays in the 50s. So Dick Weber is uh, his teammate. But, uh, yeah. Okay. 
Well, Dr. Jake, here's your chance to promote. What's uh, what's the book uh, that, that you have out there that uh, people can kind of get a good taste of, of the rich and deep history of, of bowling in this country? Okay, it's called The Bowling Chronicles. It's by me, J.R. Schmidt, and it's a collection of 90 of the stories I've done for Bowler's Journal over the last 30-something years, and including is a very long story on the National Bowling League, including that picture of the Gladiator Arena in Tonawada, New Jersey, with, uh, you know, a dozen people in the stands watching the bowlers, and many other uh, great pictures as well. That's fantastic. Well, I look. I, this is uh, this has been a treat for me because uh, you know I, I love uh, all, like I said, pro sports teams and leagues and all that kind of stuff. And it, this uh, this silly little show over the last couple of years has started to really resonate. And I, it does wax and wane. I think you know some people are football fans or baseball fans or a particular team from their childhood and stuff. But we love to go deep into some of the uh, dare I say obscure, but but similarly fascinating. Uh, stories of, of other sports that, you know, sort of uh, defy uh, maybe modern logic, but, you know, but but when looked upon in context, uh, make a ton of sense. And, and you just, you know, you you wonder about sort of the stories and the situations and the uh, and all that sort of behind it. And this is uh, absolutely one of them. And God, you know, it's, it's been tough to find a lot of information about this thing called the National Bowling League. And, and uh, I'm honored to have been able to talk to who I think, frankly, is, is probably the, uh, the national, if not the world's uh, you know, deepest expert in the sport of bowling. And that's Dr. Jake. I appreciate your time very much. It's been awesome. Well, thank you for the kind words. And uh, thank you for helping to promote bowling because uh, it is a great sport uh, competitively and also recreationally. And um, we are not going to lose this sport. We Go out and bowl some games today after listening to me. Go ahead. All right, there it is, man. Yeah, this is almost like a, an alternate history, perhaps, of the sport of bowling. You know, had it not been for the Pro Bowlers Tour, this National Bowling League might have been the way we would enjoy the pre, uh, the professional ranks of bowling in this country. Uh, but alas, for all the reasons we talked about with uh, with Dr. Jake, it was not to be. But uh, boy, that was uh, pretty interesting stuff. And, you know, next time you're up in Allen Park, Michigan, in the suburbs of uh, Detroit, check out the uh, Thunder Bowl. It's still there. And I wonder if there's a plaque or any other kind of commemorative uh, uh, item there that uh, reminisces or remembers the old Detroit Thunderbirds of the National Bowling League. Uh, I uh, challenge our listeners up in Michigan to uh, let us know, maybe send us a photo or two and and uh, just uh, let us know what uh, the situation is up there in terms of of the memories of of the Thunderbirds and the old National Bowling League. And uh, Dr. Jake is just a wealth of information about the sport of bowling. And I look, I don't. I uh, consider myself an aficionado, but uh, I learned a lot and I'm, I'm intrigued to learn more, frankly. Uh, and uh, Dr. Jake's book is called The Bowling Chronicles, The Collected Writings of Dr. Jake. Uh, it was published in uh, well, late 2016. Uh, Dr. Jake was the uh, has been for, for many years the uh, sort of uh, in-house writer and historian for Bowler's Jour- Journal International. Sorry, I can't say that three times fast. Uh, and uh, this is the collected writings of Dr. Jake. He's got a couple of other books out there, too. But this is this is probably the best and most accessible tome. And, of course, there are a couple of chapters devoted to the NBL uh, in that as well. And, of course, you can find The Bowling Chronicles uh, wherever good books are found. But, of course, you can find it on our website, too, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. What number is it? I think it's number 141. 
uh, with uh, with Dr. Jake, and uh, you'll find a link uh, and some photos, of course, to the book. And you'll, you'll be whisked away to, to Amazon to, to click and purchase a copy for yourself. Uh, we, of course, get a couple of, uh, of nickels and dimes of love. We appreciate that. That helps uh, our show keep going and pay some bills. We appreciate that. Uh, and I'm sure Dr. Jake will appreciate that as well. And while you're there at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com, why don't you uh, tool around and see all the other great stuff we've got for you. And if, for example, the other 140 episodes that we've done so far and, and the more to come. Uh, they're all there for you. You can download them or, or stream them, do whatever you'd like, but, you know, send them as emails to your friends, whatever you want to do. They're all there at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, as is, as are our uh, our social media feeds. Uh, you can uh, find the links to those or just go directly, if you like, to your favorite platforms and, and follow us. Why don't you? On Twitter, you'll find us at GoodSeatStill. Uh, on uh, Instagram, you'll find us at GoodSeatsStillAvailable. On uh, Facebook, you'll find us. Uh, there's a little web page devoted to us there. You just search up there and find us there. I don't know, I don't know exactly how you find it, but you'll find it. Uh, look, you want to send us some email? You can do that directly if you'd like. Send a note to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. If you forget that, just go to the website and you find the link and you click on and it'll send a little form there to us in email form. And of course, you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter there at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just uh, search up there and find it and uh, send us a little note and and we'll uh, gladly add you to our weekly newsletter and you'll have a couple of days advance notice as to what new episode awaits you uh, before the uh, the hoi polloi, the average Joe on the street there. All right. One last thing we want to say thank you, as we always do each week, uh, to our pal Jerry Payne, the good doctor, our second doctor to uh, be uh, uh, feted down this week's episode. Uh, he, of course, uh, the guy in charge of putting all of our uh, our uh, collective pieces together and doing all of our editing chores, and we appreciate it, as always. And you can find out more about Jerry and his team at Podfly Productions by going to podfly.net. All right, we are just about done, but uh, I just want to harken back again. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of uh, uh, the intersection between bowling and television has been uh, synonymous, frankly, with the, with the medium and the sport over many decades. And if you, uh, if you were alive during the 1970s, you may remember a little show called celebrity bowling and we're going to leave you now with that uh, with that uh, theme song from that show and and i tell you go onto youtube you'll find you, you will lose hours of your life by uh, finding some of these old episodes of of uh, celebrity bowling four celebrities each show and, and none of them uh, related to each other whatsoever it, it defies description it's hilarious to watch enjoy it why don't you but here's the theme song from that that hip celebrity bowling show and uh, uh it's uh, actually titled king richard's well it's called everybody loves my baby that's the theme song uh and it's by a group called king richard's flugel knights uh no joke and it's called everybody loves my baby and again also known as the theme song from celebrity bowling until next week we uh bid you fond adieu we'll see you